This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Don't forget to give us a like, and if you'd like to, leave us a review as well. Now, this week, we're focusing on a new series of commissioned portraits, which will depict the lives of six people of African descent whose stories have contributed to England's rich history. One of the figures featured in these new portraits is Amoba Aina, later renamed Sarah Forbes Bonetta. She was an enslaved African princess who was transported to 19th century England for a remarkable reason, and we'll discover how and why in this episode. Joining us to discuss her life and the artwork it has inspired are Properties Historian's team leader, Dr Andrew Han, and artist Hannah Uzor. Hello, welcome. Thank you, Charles. It's good to be back. Hannah, we'll talk to you in just a sec about your painting, which is being displayed at Osborne on the Isle of Wight. But first, let's get to know the subject of the painting in more detail. She was born Amoba Aina, but we'll use the name that she was known by from the age of eight, which is Sarah Forbes Bonetta. So, Andrew, can you tell us when Sarah was originally born and whereabouts in West Africa she was raised? Because I understand that she was a princess. Yes, well, she was born in 1843 in a village called Oka Odan, which is in the Oyo Empire, which straddles the border between Benin and southwestern Nigeria. And she came from the Egbado clan of the Yoruba people, which are known today as the Yua. And we know that Aina was born a princess because Oba means ruler in the Yoruba and Bini languages of West Africa. So we're fairly clear about that. And who enslaved her? How old was she at the time? Well, when she was about five years old, she had been captured. This was in 1848, when her village was attacked by troops loyal to King Gezo of Dahomey, which was a sort of neighbouring kingdom. And he was a notorious slave trader and one of the most powerful rulers in this part of West Africa at the time. So we know that she was enslaved by this African king. And we know eventually that she found her way to England. So in between that, there was some kind of rescue. Can you tell us who was involved in that? Yes, indeed. What happened was that Britain has deployed a naval squadron called the West African Squadron, whose job it was to patrol the coast of Africa and intercept Spanish or French slaving vessels, and also to sort of get involved in sending out diplomatic missions to local rulers, trying to dissuade them from taking part in the in the slave trade. And this is all after the Abolition Act had been passed in abolishing slavery in Britain and its empire in 1833. So we were sort of taking on on this sort of role of sort of policing the African coast to try and eliminate slavery. And one of these particular diplomatic missions was led by a gentleman called Frederick Forbes, who was a naval captain within the West African squadron. And he arrived in Dahomey to meet with King Gezo on one of these missions because 
King Gezo was one of the dominant figures in the supply of enslaved people from West Africa at the time, and it was seen as being important for the British government to try and dissuade him from continuing his practice of, of selling slaves. Mm. And when Forbes arrives, Gezo invited him to a, a ceremony which is called Econi Nu Arto, which was actually a, a particular ceremony in which human sacrifices were made of the king's enemies that had been captured in battle. Yeah, and when the the victims were paraded in front of Forbes, he noticed that one of them was a young girl, this princess, Aina, and he spoke to the king and told him that Queen Victoria would never kill a child or would certainly not respect any ruler that did so. And he was able to convince the king to spare her life by offering her as a gift instead. Right. So instead of her being sacrificed, she was given as a gift to Forbes, uh, and this was all part of the sort of general... Uh, approach of these sort of diplomatic missions where there was an exchange of gifts between the two parties. I can imagine the high level of diplomacy at this time. This is still a very sensitive period in English history with um, the abolition of the slave trade, England almost marking its own homework in a way by going from slave traders to anti-slave traders and then trying to dissuade African leaders from involving themselves in this human trafficking industry. And then, of course, this Captain Forbes coming along on this diplomatic mission is then this rescuer of this young girl. But I presume that during this human sacrifice ritual, others didn't survive. To our modern ears, it's just truly awful, isn't it? It does. I mean, I've, I've looked through Captain Forbes' diary that he published after the event, and, and some, of the, uh, some of the things he describes are, are truly awful. But it's a reflection, I guess, of the culture that had built up around slave trading at this time, which had actually, the volume of slaves that were being exported from the territory had actually encouraged some of these rulers to start raiding neighboring clans and peoples and taking them prisoner to provide slaves to then sell to the European slave traders at the ports. Mm. So it was a sort of culture that had almost built up and people like King Gezo had actually gained their wealth and power through slave trading. So it, it was very difficult for the Royal Navy, even for these missions, to persuade him to give up the trade because that was what brought him his wealth and, and influence in the, in the region. Yes, it was a real difficult thing to untangle. And yet Sarah, or Aina, was gifted, uh, shall we say, to Queen Victoria and rescued. This gifted thing, this implies some sort of ownership. So can you tell us a bit more about that? That was about, about the exchange of gifts between the king and Captain Forbes, is that right? It was customary for diplomatic gifts to be exchanged when one of the Queen's representatives met with one of these local rulers. And Forbes had been offered these cowries, which were used as currency and also rum and a number of other things, as well as as, as Aina. And these items were all intimately linked in with the slave trade. For instance, the cowries gathered in the East Indies, particularly from the Maldives, and they're used, so they're then shipped to Africa to exchange for slaves and then become a used as a local currency there. And the rum, simply, similarly, that's produced in the Caribbean and then brought over to Africa to exchange again for slaves. So this is all sort of intimately linked still with the slave trading activities that are going on there. But for Gezo, of course, Aina is a high-status captive and as such, as well as being a potential human sacrifice, she's also a valuable commodity that he can exchange to sort of gain influence with Queen Victoria by, by offering her up as a gift. He mm. hopes to sort of gain favour with the Queen. So they are playing for high stakes here. Yes, yes, I was about to say high stakes, exactly. So when did Aina, later known as Sarah, and Captain Forbes arrive back in England? Where did she go first? 
what happens is that after he accepts her as a gift, he returns to his ship, travels further down the coast, and has her baptised at the Church Missionary Society Chapel in Badagery, which is further down the coast, a sort of former slave training port. And there she's baptised as Sarah Forbes Bonetta, after his own name, of course, Forbes, so his own surname, and the name of his ship, HMS Bonetta. Right, and this name change is, is you know interesting because it sort of signals almost her separation from her African roots because she's been sort of renamed and 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 now has become the, effectively the property of Queen Victoria. Um, mm. Forbes then leaves Africa in July, so it was in May that he'd first set off on his mission, and he's leaving Africa in July, and then he has the long journey back to England, which takes several months, during which. Sarah learns to speak English from speaking to the sailors on board and she also shows her talent for music so she's Forbes talks about her as being a very intelligent young girl who the crew really take to and uh, during this long voyage back which takes several months and it's you know early September before they get back to England. Just remind us of how old she was at the time. Well when she was captured she was five years old so she's between seven and eight years old at this point. So quite a lot of time has actually passed before she really even steps foot on english soil it has indeed yes yeah it's only really in um sort of early september that she reaches england and then she goes to stay with forbes and his wife for a few months and in november forbes has contacted the first secretary of the admiralty john parker and he talks about this gift of sarah forbes bonetta who uh, he's received from King Gezo and suggests that he'd be duty-bound to lay her before Her Majesty because she'd been provided as a gift for the Queen. So in early November, he's granted an audience with the Queen at Windsor Castle and brings Sarah with him. The Queen notes in her journal for the 9th of November, this is the date of the first meeting, she says, Captain Forbes saved her life by asking for her as a present. She is seven years old, sharp and intelligent, and speaks English. She was just as any other girl. When her bonnet was taken off, her little black woolly head and big earrings gave her true Negro type. So describing this first mm. meeting between the Queen and uh, and Sarah. I understand, Andrew, that she lives with the Forbes family for a while, but then Captain Forbes actually dies. What did he die of? Yes, sadly, Captain Forbes died in, in early 1851, probably from malaria. And around the same time, Sarah developed a bit of a chronic cough herself and this was attributed to the climate in Britain and uh, and the Queen felt that maybe the climate here wasn't conducive to her. So she suggested that Sarah be sent off to the Church Missionary Society School in Freetown, Sierra Leone. And we find in the school register there, her name appears simply as Sally Bonetta, pupil number 24, June 1851. So we know that she's there from around this date. And She's there for about around four years at the school. But after a few years, it appears that Sarah has become unhappy in Freetown. And so the Queen arranges for her to return to England in 1855 at the age of 12. And she's then placed with a Reverend James Schoen and his wife Elizabeth, who are former missionaries in Africa, who but now live in Gillingham in Kent. And Sarah really has spent six happy years living with them during which time she continues regularly to visit the Queen. Has she got quite a good relationship via letter with Her Majesty as well during the time that she's at school in Sierra Leone? She does indeed. I mean, when she's away in Sierra Leone, the Queen continues to show an interest in Sarah's well-being. She sends her presents and books to read. She's paying for her keep over there as well. So she's effectively acting as a sort of ward or guardian. Hmm. Um and, and later, the, the Schoen's daughter, Annie, who becomes a close friend of Sarah, 
she noted that Queen Victoria gave constant proof of her kindly interest in her, that's in, in Sarah. At midsummer and Christmas seasons, she often went either to Windsor or Osborne to stay in the family of one of the officers of Her Majesty's household and was frequently sent for by the Queen to see her privately. So this idea that there's a continuing relationship with the Queen, both when she's out in Freetown, but also when she comes back to England and is living with the Shones, she's still sort of being treated as you know a favoured guest to be invited to royal affairs. And we also see that she attends the wedding of Princess Victoria and Prince Frederick William of Prussia in 1858. And she's again invited to Princess Alice's wedding at Osborne in 1861. So she's been treated as, you know, a sort of member of the inner circle of the court, really. Um, When these weddings are taking place, is she a teenager around those times? By 1861, she was probably about 17 or 18, that sort of age. Mm. But during this time, Sarah does start to begin towards her late teens to see the Queen's control of her life has been a little overbearing because the Queen is basically making decisions for her about what happens to her. She was particularly unhappy at being sort of semi-coerced into leaving her happy life with the Showens to move to Brighton, where the Queen had arranged for a Miss Welsh to oversee her introduction to society. So almost, you know, sort of organising her sort of introduction to adult society. And she really felt she'd already been taken away from her own family as as a young child. And then brought away from Africa and then she'd found some happiness with the Shones and now she's been taken away from them again. So you can understand how it must have been very disorienting to be keep being moved on to different people at the Queen's behest. Yes, I can imagine that must have been quite traumatic in a way if you imagine the original trauma to start with of being saved and then losing the father figure and then having a kind of quasi-matriarchal figure who's very powerful as the Queen of England, overseeing and paying for you, but not having a, a lot of contact with them. And then obviously becoming your own person as a teenager and then wanting to make your own decisions. I suppose there's quite a lot to deal with in that uh, childhood and teenagehood, if that's a word. There is indeed. I mean, it sounds as if, you know, she she did manage to have a happy childhood to an extent within that, in the, the family of the Shones. But uh, yes, things changed once she moved to Brighton. Now, did she ever get work or, or get married? Well, yes. When she was 19, so this is fairly soon after arriving in Brighton, a Sierra Leone-born merchant, James Davis, declared that his interest in marrying her. Now, he was of Yoruba parentage as well and and had been freed from slavery and moved to Sierra Leone and he was a successful merchant there he was relatively wealthy and he'd met Sarah briefly when she was at school at the mission school in Sierra Leone and he had been visiting the school but they really didn't know each other and Sarah is extremely reluctant at first because she's really fearful of losing her independence that she'd had with the Shones but the Queen very much approved of the match and put quite a lot of pressure on Sarah to accept it and so Despite her misgivings, the couple were married on the 14th of August, 1862. And on the marriage certificate, Sarah interestingly gives her name as Ina, I-N-A, rather than Aina or Sarah. So she's sort of keeping right. in touch with some of her African ancestry there on the marriage That's really interesting. Uh, mm. dro- dropping the uh, sort of anglicised Christian name and then sort of reverting to her roots uh, yeah. by marrying the, a chap who is obviously from West Africa as well. Exactly, yeah. And this wedding is quite a lavish affair. There's a lot of curiosity within the country about this supposed African princess. So you get the Bishop of Sierra Leone actually officiating at the ceremony. He comes over to officiate and there's large crowds gathered to witness the spectacle. This is all happening in Brighton, by the way. And Mm. the newspapers report 
10 horse-drawn carriages, 16 bridesmaids, and a wedding party made up of white women and African gentlemen, and then African ladies and white gentlemen. So it's a, it's a really sort of quite a, a lavish and extravagant affair. And then shortly after the wedding, Sarah and James have a, a series of photographs taken of them by Camille Sylvie, who's a really celebrated French photographer of the day who's renowned for taking society photographs. And there's some suggestion maybe the Queen actually commissioned these photographs herself, and they, they're in the Royal Collection today. Yes, and we'll get on to the photographic evidence which has influenced our artist Hannah Uzor, who's uh, done this portrait of Sarah Forbes Bonetta very shortly. The last thing, of course, to cover regarding Sarah's life, Andrew, is, of course, that the marriage only lasts as long in insofar as she unfortunately meets an untimely end. Can you tell us a bit more about how she dies? Yes, well, of course. Well, after the wedding, the couple moved to Sierra Leone and then off onto Lagos in Nigeria. And this is because this is where James Davis's business activities were based. And Sarah, for a time, teaches in a school. She becomes a school teacher until the birth of her first child, who she names Victoria after the Queen in 1863. Uh, and then she has two subsequent children, a boy in a- Arthur Davis in 1871 and then, a- and then another girl, Stella, in 1873. But by the late 1870s, she's starting to be unwell. She's suffering from what's later diagnosed as tuberculosis, which there's no cure at this time. And so she travels to Madeira, hoping that its temperate climate might help with her chest condition. But sadly, she dies there on the 15th of August, 1880, aged just 37. And to make it even more poignant, at the time of her death, her eldest daughter, Victoria, who is then 17, hears of her mother's death while she's actually travelling to Osborne House to visit Queen Victoria. And the Queen reports after the event the following day that my black godchild was so dreadfully upset and distressed. Her father has failed in business, which aggravated her poor mother's illness. I shall give her an annuity. So you get this sense that it's gone full circle, that the mother has been you know, supported by the Queen, and now she's now going to give an annuity and support her godmother, the daughter, Victoria. Yes. So, and were the other children supported as well? I'm not aware that they were. I think my understanding is that they remained in, in Africa. I may, I may, may be wrong on, on this, but I, I understand that they remained in Africa. But for some reason, Victoria, the eldest, who was a good deal older than the other two, actually. She's almost 10 years older than the others. She comes over to England and uh, and she ends up being educated at Cheltenham Ladies College and, uh, and, stays, yeah, and stays in touch with um, Queen Victoria throughout her life. It's a remarkable story in, in history of this um, African princess who became almost an adopted child of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. So in some respects, she stayed within royal roots, if that's one way of summarising the experience. Of course, 140 years later, a portrait of Sarah Forbes Bonetta is on display at Osborne, which was Queen Victoria's uh, royal getaway. And artist Hannah Uzor is responsible for painting this fabulous portrait. Hannah, you've put a brush to canvas here on this new portrait, but Sarah's story is just, it's just remarkable, isn't it? And, and quite inspirational in a way. What are your thoughts when you hear all this? I was really inspired by Sarah's story because in my practice, I'm involved or really keen on the Black identity and the Black experience. And Sarah's story is a story that quest- allows us to question what it means to be Black British, particularly in this day and age. And having 
heard about Sarah's story and hearing about how she was an African princess and a West African heritage and bring brought up here in England just challenges all assumptions that people tend to have regarding black people and our heritage, particularly here in the UK when black history is is not really taught in conjunction with the wider history of England. Mm. Yes, I'd, I would agree with that, actually, because the first black people who came to our islands were not in the 1950s as a result of labour being needed after the Second World War. The roots and interrelations with Africa go a lot deeper back into history than that, don't they? They certainly do. And I think history and identity are so interlinked. And when we try and separate those two, then we find that we have a people that cannot necessarily identify with where they are at the moment. And I think having to have these stories that reconnect some of these identities and histories just brings a broader and richer picture to our identity as black individuals living in the UK. Yes, I think that's um, it's a really difficult thing, that idea of displacement, even today. How did you approach, though, this idea of connecting with this historical figure, this, this real person? What research did you have to do in, in making your portrait? Well, in Sarah's case, obviously, there was a lot of historical evidence about her life. And like many other black people who were probably living during her time, where names and records are lost, in terms of Sarah's case, there's quite a lot of evidence of her life. Obviously, we had photographic evidence of her uh, of her wedding, and there's Camille Sylvie's uh, fantastic photographs. So in doing research, we're spending a lot of time in finding you know, what's written about her in books, Obviously, we have the Queen's Diaries to, that we can have access to and we can read excerpts from the Queen's Diaries about her life. So delving into the archive in terms of finding any documentation about Sarah's life was really important. Another aspect that I had to look at was also how black people or just generally people were depicted in paintings during the Victorian era at the time which she lived in. So uh, I was looking at a lot of portraits of the Queen herself and how she was depicted and the princesses of the day, because visually it's important for me as an artist to try and situate the painting back in the 19th century, but still Mm. have a contemporary edge to it. Yeah, that's really interesting how you might have studied the stances, the poses, the way that the subject was looking at the artist, so to Mm. speak. And here you are as an artist in the 21st century, trying to connect with someone who's no longer the sitter, and who is yes. in the 19th century. That, it's almost like you're working through a time tunnel or something. How was yes, that? Yes, certainly. Well, it's, it's, really, it's really exciting because you are, in the sense, working through a time tunnel, but you have to get into the character by getting access to as much historical information about the character that you're working on. In Sarah's case, like I alluded to earlier, it was much easier because there's been quite a lot of interest about her, her life being a, an African princess, obviously her relationship with the queen. And so all these little nuances about her, her character as a person are scattered through all this documentation about her. And so me also trying to um, research her personality through these archives was something that I tried to delve deeper into so that I could, as if she were here, bring some of those attributes onto the canvas. Yes, and, and bring her to life on the canvas. Can you describe... Obviously, we're doing a podcast here, so we must have to paint pictures with words. Can you describe what you've created and how you got Sarah's personality as you discovered it to come through? Well, the painting is it's about a metre tall 
was 120 centimeters and 80 centimeters wide. And Sarah Forbes is the center figure in this painting. So it's a full length painting of her that's based on a photograph of Camille Sylvie. And in the painting, she is standing against a teal, deep teal background. And she's in, a, in an ivory Victorian dress. And the gaze that she has in this photograph was particularly important for me because having read through the records of uh, Sarah's life, she was really somebody who was a resilient, she was a fighter, and she was a very strong woman to go through all that she went through. And she also had her own personality. And like Andrew alluded to earlier, how she signed her marriage certificate with the name Ina, as if to draw a line in the sand that she still has this identity. And mm. so the gaze that she, I depicted her in this picture, in this painting, is a very regal gaze, and she has a very regal stance as well. She's owning her space as a black woman, as a black woman who has both an African heritage and the British heritage as well. And she's standing slightly sideways on, I believe, and looking to the right if we're looking at the painting. Is that right? Yes, she is. But she's leaning against a chair. In, in the photograph Camille Sylvie produced, there are obviously these props that she's, she has around and there's a chair with a book on top of it. I think that was just a reference to probably her education. Um, mm. Art historians would probably depict that a bit more. But one thing I forgot to mention as well is that not only is she standing in this sort of regal manner, but she also, the way I depicted the painting was I, I included a layer of fabric on the dress to bring out that aspect of her identity. How did it feel then to see your portrait being put up at Osborne when it was first displayed in October? Because it's going to be back there again later, isn't it? Yes, it is. It was really satisfying because my practice is all about bringing these new stories to light and forgotten histories to light. And having Sarah's painting in Osborne House, where she visited as a, as a child, and where loads of people come in and see the empire and relics of the empire and paintings of the queen and others. Um, I think Osborne House has some paintings of Indian uh, subjects as well. And this painting of Sarah is almost like the missing piece of the puzzle that should have been there years ago. Yeah. What feedback did you get when people saw it there? Well, really positive feedback, particularly because there are no paintings of black or prominent painting, should I say, of black subjects in Osborne House. And a painting, the painting, Sarah's painting is quite a, a significant size and it actually blends very well with the uh, entire aesthetic of Osborne House. So it's a, it's a marriage made in heaven, as it were. <laughs> did anyone think it was a, an antique or anything like that? Or did they think it was contemporary? I think because of the fabric on the painting, it does give a contemporary edge to it. But in terms of the actual colour palette, it's well suited to Osborne House in terms of the ivory and the teal that's actually on the painting. Mm. But uh, because it has this layer of fabric, then it does allow the audience to question a lot about the painting, which is something that I that was intentional in doing the work. Yes, I think that's the same you can say about all paintings, really, is to start a conversation, isn't it, really? Yes. For it not just to be looked at, for it to be discussed and admired and all the rest of it. Thinking about the wider exhibition of portraits that are taking place as part of this sort of festival, shall we say, there's your own work. There's also the portraits of the other five subjects. Mm. How important is portraiture in telling these stories about the past? I think it's, it's really very important because we need to have a complete picture of our history. We can't decide 
only just focus on the good bits or the bits that we think are worth telling. I think a holistic picture of British history is something that should be emphasized and not picking and choosing the bits that we think are important. And in present day England, there is a whole generation of black people and people of African heritage that are questioning their identity and their roots and certainly having an awareness that they were not the first people here, neither have you know, the 1950s Windrush generation where the first black people to come on English shore, I think it's something that gives them more, you could say, a nationalist sort of spirit about it. It's a good start, I think, to use art in this way to really show people through image what was really happening. And it's good that in some respects we can revisit the past and, and, and retell it through visual means like this. I think it's quite an effective way of communicating that to the public. What what do you think? Yes, certainly, because a lot of these places that people visit shape the mental image of what Britishness is in people's psyche and changing what people see visually in big institutions like English heritage houses or museums or even in galleries just change the psyche of the wider society and shows that we have a part, we are as British as everybody else. So your broader hopes for this would, I suppose, just be to encourage conversation and encourage a bit of revisitation of history and, and the way that we tell it, the way that we tell ourselves history as a, multi, yes, as a multicultural society now. Certainly, yes, we are very much a multicultural society. And um, it's important that our children know the full picture of history because we have seen the past and how the past has been affected so much by the prejudices. You know, the legacy of imperialism and slave trade has, has left a bitter aftertaste in so many people's mouths, to say the least. And so changing these narratives to give a people a chance to rethink and revisit our history is really important. And so the next generation really needs to hear the real story and the full story of our past, the good, the bad and the ugly. Mm. Andrew, let's bring in Dr. Andrew Han again. Andrew, I think it's a really important point, is it, isn't it, that history is always being revisited and rewritten. You'd agree with that being a historian, wouldn't you? Oh, it's certainly true, yeah. I mean, if, if history stood still, then uh, then we would be out of a job, wouldn't we? We're continually telling and retelling history as, you know, new evidence comes to light or we reinterpret existing evidence in the light of new ways of thinking about it. And, and this is one really good example where by shining a light on the black presence in Britain in earlier earlier centuries, you know, usually these wonderful new portraits is actually helping to shine a light on existing evidence that, you know, may have lain undiscovered or, or little recognised in the past. Yes, well, let's talk about those five other portraits which are going on display at English heritage sites. Could you give us a bit more detail about who's in them and also where we can see them? Sure. Well, we commissioned these five other portraits. They really cover the whole sort of panoply of time of British history, right, from the Roman period through to the 20th century. And that was a deliberate attempt to sort of demonstrate the depth of time of which there's been a black presence in this country. And we particularly we were particularly keen to commission black or, or mixed heritage artists to paint these portraits. So all the artists are from those backgrounds as well. And so the first of these portraits is of Septimius Severus. And he's a Roman African-born emperor who travelled to Britain in AD 208. And he's involved in strengthening of Hadrian's Wall and the reoccupation, you know, sort of conquest further north into Scotland and the building and the reoccupation of the Antonine Wall. So... He's a really important 
figure in in the history of imperial rome but he's also an african figure he comes from north africa he's a north african descent and the artist elena onwuchi garcia who's going to be painting his portrait has really wanted to sort of pick upon that and and you know i think she's basing her portraits on some of his coinage which you know depicts his image and the next one we've got is of abbot hadrian and he's a an african again a north african scholar in the period of sort of Anglo-Saxon England, and he becomes abbot of St. Augustine's Abbey in Kent, where the portrait will be hanging. He is, you know, a really important figure in the intellectual development of early Christianity in this country, and yet is very little known. So the artist Clifton Powell is going to be painting his portrait. Next one is James Chapel. He's different again. We're moving forward now to the 17th century, and he's a servant of African descent based at Kirby Hall in Northamptonshire, which is where the portrait will be hanging. Mm-hmm. And he's most well-known for the fact that he saves Kirby's owner, Sir Christopher Hatton IV, from an explosion. He was in, in Guernsey, where he was stationed at Castle Cornet, and there was a major explosion there. He and his family were covered in rubble, and this servant, James Chapel, rescues both him and three of his daughters from the rubble and was rewarded for that so again an interesting figure who's very little known today but who was celebrated at the time for the you know sort of daring deed that he did on that day yeah Um, a rediscovered hero who are the other ones then the other two are are dido bell who's a little better known because of obviously her connection with the earl of mansfield and she was a mixed race woman the daughter of a, a young black woman possibly a slave and a royal naval officer and she was raised by her great uncle the earl of mansfield at kenwood house which is where the portrait will be hanging and the artist for this portrait is michaela henry lowe and she is going to base her depiction on the now quite famous portrait of dido bell and her cousin it's been used in like, film and, and book yes. whatever form so so that she's she's probably the most well-known of the different characters we're depicting And then the final one is Arthur Roberts, and he's, again, a very interesting character, a black soldier from the First World War. He was born in Bristol and brought up in Glasgow, but he joins the King's Own Scottish Borders Regiment in 1917. He fights at the Battle of Passchendaele, and his home base would have been in Berwick Barracks, Berwick-upon-Tweed Barracks, which is where the portrait will be hanging. And again, there's a published biography of him, but he's not that well-known in terms of his background and the, you know his heroism as a, a soldier during the First World War. So again, a really interesting character for the artist Chloe Cox to depict. So am I right in saying that perhaps three of the six all were previously represented visually either through photographic form or portrait form? Yes, there are. There's photographs of, of Arthur Roberts. But of course, the yeah. others, in the case of James Chapel and Abbot Hadrian, we have no images of them at all. So the artists are having to use their imagination and reference material that's been provided by our curators and historians and their own research to try and uh, imagine what they may have been like. Just in conclusion, then, for either of you to answer, really, what does Sarah's life, Sarah Forbes Bonetta's life, teach us about Victorian society? It's a broad question, I know. Well, I, would, I think for me, her life really challenges uh, what we think about the black presence in the UK and generally what the black experience would have been like. There's interactions of Sarah Forbes in high class society 
and she eventually marries another African man who presumably was among those high-class society circles. And so this broad spectrum of black peoples at various levels, whether it's high society or whether it's, you could say, if there was a middle class and a lower class, because usually we only hear the stories of the slaves and those who were servants and those who were, you could say, at the lower end of society. But here is an example of Sarah who changes the status quo, as it were. One of the things that occurs to me from her story is that it says quite a lot of really interesting things about Victorian attitudes to race. The Queen's own attitude, which is very supportive, but at the same time quite paternalistic, which ties in with sort of the notions of empire and the idea of civilising the African people under British guidance. That sort of notion is, is sort of underlying the relationship between Sarah and the Queen. But also the wider view within society. I mean, there's, her life in a, in a way is almost seen as a bit of a social experiment by some of the people around the Queen. They were looking at her intelligence and trying to sort of understand how that fitted in with their notions of race and intelligence and those sort of things. So it's quite a complex story, I think. It, it really says a lot about what had gone before in terms of slavery, but also in terms of the colonial legacy. It comes out in her life and how that influences the way that the British psyche and their thoughts about race and how that played out. And I think that plays out just as relevantly as, as Hannah was saying today as it did 140, 150 years ago. A multifaceted story, I think, with lots of positives and negatives. But lastly, why do you think Sarah Forbes Burness's story is important today? Hannah, you touched on it a little bit just earlier, but do you want to expand? Yes, I think it's really about having a full picture of history. And I think uh, Sarah Forbes is one of those characters that helps us to look a bit deeper into what the standard narrative of our history is being taught today. Very last question then, Hannah. Obviously, your painting, which you've put a lot of effort into, is going on display at Osborne, where Sarah Forbes Bonetta visited and stayed. When exactly is it going on display? Well, it's going to display this summer, round about the middle of June. It will be re-released again into, for the public to view. That sounds fantastic. And I wish you the best of luck with the uh, sort of unveiling again, the re-unveiling. And um, look forward to lots of visitors having great feedback. And thank you very much, both of you, for talking to us. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be back to discover the stories of the real-life knight who lived at English Heritage Castles, as these prepare to host another series of jousts and fight like a knight events. So until then, thanks for listening, and see you next time. <laughs>